What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Welcome to Athletic Lab's Sport Performance Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Shona Halson. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Shona. Thanks, Ivan. Uh, before we start, can you please tell us about your background, your education experience, and uh, what are you currently doing? Yeah, sure. So my background um, is in exercise physiology. I did a PhD uh, in the area of overtraining and then started work at the AIS in 2002 and um, in the physiology department and with a specialization in recovery. So for the last sort of 15, 16 years, we've been working on um, research in the area of recovery and specifically sleep most recently, um, as well as working with athletes themselves. So some service provision and some education. Um, and some monitoring as well. Mm, great. So, okay, let's start with a question for which everyone seems to know the answer on, and that is, how much sleep is enough? And also, can you define sleep quantity and quality? Because a lot of people are mixing these terms. Yeah, um, good question. So, um, for us, we bel- most... Um, people believe you need eight hours sleep um, and I believe athletes probably need a little bit more than that. Um, so given the um, physical and psychological stresses that can uh, right. can occur with athletes, you know, we believe somewhere around nine hours would be great. Uh, yeah. We don't see that very often um, and there's a number of reasons why we don't see that. Um, but sleep, um, obviously sleep duration um, is bedtime um, and then um, wake time and, and most people are pretty good at accurately determining their sleep duration um, or their time in bed. They're pretty good at, de- at being able to accurately determine that. Um, sleep quant- um, quality is um, – we measure that. There's different ways you can measure that. You can measure that subjectively. So, you know, how did you think you slept on a, on a, on a subjective scale mm-hmm. um, or you, we measure – typically with actigraphy, so using activity monitors to look at movement. And the more movement you have, typically the less um, quality sleep you have. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's the gold standard, which is polysomnography. So that's where you, right. the brain is wired and the, and your breathing straps and a whole lot of right, um, right. other measuring devices on. And that can really tell you your sleep uh, your sleep quality. So there's a couple of different ways um, to measure it, some more invasive, some more practical, um, but basically Basically, um, sleep um, sleep quality is um, looking at um, how well you've actually slept. So how much time do you have Mm -hmm. awake during the night and um, how long did it take you to fall asleep? So you can get an actual percentage of time that you're in bed that you're actually asleep. Right. So in your opinion, which one is more important or in which one we should focus on more? Yeah, it's a very difficult question because they combine um, together usually. So what we Mm -hmm. often find is that people might have a short sleep duration. So they may only be sleeping seven hours, but their quality is really, really good. So they're basically completely asleep in deep sleep, you know, a significant amount of time. So it it is very hard to say. What we do know, though, is if you ask an athlete how well you slept as a really general question, they'll base it on how long they slept not the quality Mm -hmm. of the sleep. They base it more on the quantity. Uh, So 
look, for us, it's really a combination. You, ne- you need the both together. And, and you might have a really long sleeper, like an athlete who sleeps for, you know, 10 or 11 hours, but their their actual quality may be not quite as good as you'd like. So they're kind of compensating for that by sleeping longer. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we know that sleep deprivation is a big problem for athletes, and it seems that sleep disturbances in athletes can occur at two time points, and that is before competition and during normal training. And Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, there are a few studies actually showing that 24 hours of sleep deprivation doesn't affect anaerobic power variables or performance tasks like snatch, clean and jerks, front squats, even whole volume, training volume and intensity when compared with no sleep deprivation. So uh, I would like to ask, uh, as ridiculous as it may sound, can it be better for some athlete that is maybe suffering from pre-competition anxiety to be sleep deprivated for whole night compared with his usual partial sleep deprivation that he probably experiences anyway? So... (laughs) Yeah, interesting question. Um, We don't really have um, any data on that because we don't really have um, a lot of information on full sleep deprivation in really good athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what most athletes would experience in that instance is a lot of um, negative psychological issues around the fact that they haven't slept at all. Right. Um, and, we, and we see that a lot. We see athletes in, in Olympic Village really stressing because they haven't, um, they haven't slept what they think is, is a decent amount. So for us, we would always say that some sleep is better than no sleep at all. Um, but what we do, um, in, I think the most important thing related to your question is to say to athletes that if you get one night of sleep that's not the best that you think it should be, that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. We just mm-hmm. don't want you having four or five or six nights of poor sleep. Um, and because what generally what we see for most sports, so you're exactly right, so these one-off high-intensity maximal efforts don't tend to have uh, show many negative effects from sleep deprivation. Um, but if you look at three or four or five days, then that does become a problem. Um, and so what we want to do is just say, look, one night of bad sleep mm-hmm. is okay. Don't worry about it, but don't let it get any more than that. Right, right. Excellent. Um, when I talk uh, with some of my athletes about their sleep, they always say, like, I don't sleep a lot during the week, but I make up for it during the weekend. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a typical one. And uh, how yeah. much can you actually make up for a bad, this bad sleeping? And what are the... So let's say there are a few strategies that uh, that we can use to overcome that problem. So could naps and power naps be a solution here, at least short-term ones? Yeah, yes, they can. And we do see this with some uh, athletes who maybe work, who have who have jobs or who are at school or who have really early morning training sessions during the week. So we can see um, people have worse sleep during the week and then play catch-up on the weekend or vice versa, sleep quite good during the week but then sleep really bad during the weekends um, for whatever reason. So, look, you can play catch-up but it does depend on how sleep-deprived, how much sleep you've actually missed during mm-hmm. um during the, the phase where you've had less sleep so right. but what i think um what i do notice too with athletes a lot of them will say to me they'll start asking questions around sleep when it gets to competition time and they won't really think about the day-to-day benefits of getting 
of getting good sleep. So um, while, yes, you might be able to play catch-up, it's probably not the best thing that you that an athlete can do. Obviously, the best thing that they can do is try to sleep as well as they can, as often as they can, um, as consistently as possible because routine, so going to bed at the same time and waking mm-hmm. at the same time, right. is pretty much the key to getting good sleep. Um, and so they talk about social jet lag where you may, you know, sleep in on weekends um, because or, or, or not sleep in on weekends, like party on a weekend. And that basically just messes up your entire routine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, sports that have to get up really early, so an example like swimmers who may get up in the four o'clock right. in the morning t- time frames. I mean, these guys, yes, a nap is basically probably the only thing that's going to help them get through. Um, so power naps are a really good way of, of topping up on sleep mm-hmm. and making up making those taking the opportunities to get extra sleep when you can. So if it is a weekend, um, taking that opportunity to get a, a couple of hours sleep is good. Right. Excellent. So would you say that team sport athletes should be even more aware of sleep quality and quantity because of a huge cognitive function role in team sports? Yeah, yeah, we definitely um, highlight the importance of sleep for for team sports. They have a lot of challenges, uh, team sports, uh, particularly around competition. So if you're an elite footballer, Mm -hmm. um, depending on what type of football that is, but you may be playing two or three times a week, late at night, um, and then we know that post-competition, a lot of athletes, regardless of sport, struggle to sleep. And maybe that's because they've had, had caffeine for the competition, um, et cetera. But you're exactly right. As sport, we have um, a lot of thinking, planning, reading, play um, that become and a long sport. With uh, So you, the duration of the event is quite long and it can be have periods of very high intensity. It's Team sports are kind of the classic situation for um, where, where sleep deprivation right. can be bad for performance. Right. So as a follow-up question, at, at what specifics should we look while dealing with team sport and what, at, at what with individual sport athlete in terms of sleep? In terms of sleep, I think it's um, there's a couple of things. We, we If we're looking at measuring or monitoring sleep, we always look mm-hmm. at, um, at, at the same things. Um, but what we see with um, the team sports is uh, potentially those later night games and then mm-hmm. you have to try and match. So managing the next day becomes really important. Um, right. Usually we find that team sports play, they compete a lot more often than an individual sport. That's very general. But mm-hmm. um, so what we, what we see is that sleep becomes really important for these team sport athletes who have to back up and play so regularly um, so that becomes the, the sleep becomes really important for them for competition whereas for a lot of the individual sport athletes it becomes more important um, for general adaptation to training um, so just minimizing general fatigue um, throughout the training program we also tend to see that individual sport athletes get up earlier in the morning so mm-hmm. on average right. they get up earlier and go to bed earlier um as, as as a very general rule but that's what we tend to see so even though we try to treat them all the same there are some little um unique mm-hmm. aspects of team sports and um individual sports that we have to um consider when we talk talk to them so for example when um i've been talking to an nba athlete mm-hmm. and i certainly can't go in and tell these individuals to go to bed at the same time every <laughs> night and wake up <laughs> they're, right. essentially they're nocturnal they may play three nights a week um and be up late at night whether that's because they're partying or because um they're, they're just staying up playing computer games or whatever it may be but these guys can be nocturnal and then they often mm-hmm. travel during the day 
Right. Um, or they travel at night. Or they travel. So their routine is absolutely all over the place. So me coming into that team sport and saying, you need to do this, uh, it, it's really, it's not possible to get a good routine. So what you have to do is just work around their current situation. And it would be very similar with um, footballers, you know, soccer players, European soccer players as well. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, excellent. Um, when we talk about influence of nutrition on sleep quality and quantity, we know that carbs helps you fall asleep faster and proteins improve sleep quality. But what about fats? Yeah, there's not um, a lot of research, as you probably know, out there on sleep and um, nutrition. There's a little bit of information on general diet, and it seems like mm-hmm. general diets high in fat are not good. Um But we don't know whether that's because of the fats itself or an unhealthy lifestyle that the individual, mm-hmm. right. you know, right. might be um, might be undertaking. So the sleep and nutrition research is really interesting, but it's super early days. So we've actually got a couple of projects that we're working on in that area because we think that it's got a lot of potential. But um, if if someone asks me now, what should I be doing in terms of nutrition to help my sleep? Um, I would say the old wives' tale of a glass of milk is right. probably the best thing that we have at the moment due to the type of carbohydrate the um the fact that it's got certain proteins in it um it's probably the best thing that we've got at the moment mm-hmm. right and what about chrononutrition i mean does it really affect sleep and wakefulness on positive way like some authors suggest Yeah, I think it's a potential. There, there, there's a potential for that for it to work. I think what we see though in the real world is practically it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you, you probably experience with your athletes, it's hard enough to get them to eat a good diet, let alone eat things at the right times um, and different yeah. foods at the right time. <laughs> and you know, then you talk about recovery, nutrition, and trying to put the whole package together in the real world doesn't um, doesn't always work. But I think there's potential for. I mean, we know there are foods that are higher in melatonin availability than others, um, and so and we know that, as you say you know, high GI carbohydrates can have a role in helping you feel yeah. sleepy. So there's there's ways that it can be manipulated, but trying to fit that into the an athlete's real-world diet is mm-hmm. can be challenging. Yeah, right. It's always about simplicity because they tend to um, – I mean – It's really hard to them uh, to them to stick with some uh, yes. complex rules, yeah, all the time. Um, yeah, sure. Can you talk a little bit about melatonin supplementation among athletes, especially among ones traveling across different time zones, and also <laughs> what other strategies can we utilize to help our athletes to adapt and perform while traveling? Yeah, um, another great question. I think um, melatonin is a tricky one. Um, there is definitely some evidence that it works um, to help aid in managing jet lag. No question there's some evidence there. The problem is is that the timing of melatonin use is very important because obviously it's a body clock shifter. Right. So you want to get the timing of it right. So if you wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, I need to take something to help mm-hmm. me get back to sleep, I'll take a melatonin, it may not be the best thing that you can take. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other issue with melatonin is it depends on where you are in the world as to um, the type of melatonin that you can get. So, for example, in Australia, it's prescription only. Right. Um, and so if we were to go to um, a health food store or a general pharmacy that, mm-hmm. and we're looking for something supplement-wise, We obviously have no idea what's in them. 
Um, right. So the risk of the inadvertent doping then becomes high. So for our athletes, truly the only real way um, that we would um, suggest them use melatonin is if it was with a script, a prescription um, from a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, we know that they we know that melatonin can work if used properly and timed correctly is the main issue. Um, the other thing that we use in terms of managing jet lag, because mm-hmm. obviously, like um, like Europeans, Australians travel a lot, <laughs> um, yeah, right. but we have long distances to go. Um, so we get um, most of our athletes are pretty good in the travel area. So one of the things that we use is light, so timing of light exposure. Mm-hmm. So right. again, you know that's exa- exactly how melatonin is released is through um, blocking of light, um, or you know we can stop melatonin release through provision of light. So using light at the right times um, can be really effective to help athletes um, get over jet lag. Now, again, that's not always practical. So, you know, we might be saying to a bunch of rowers who are out on the water early in the morning that that's the worst time to get light. Um, But they don't really have an option. They have to be out on the water. So then we'd suggest to them, you know, to wear dark sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get light blocking glasses as well if they're really keen um so we do try and use light um as much as possible and and for us really the key is also around sleep when they sleep that first day on arrival you know can they push through to the end of the day and just have a normal Mm -hmm. night's sleep we try to time our flights really carefully so for example um if I prefer day flights. Now, coaches often don't prefer day flights because they obviously don't want to miss a training session. Um, But day flights, you know, the sleep quality on a plane is so poor. Like even if you're business class and you're lying flat, it's still bad quality sleep. So if you're flying overnight and the the staff expect that the athletes are good to go because they've had a 12-hour flight and they've slept throughout that flight, um, usually what that means is they've had a very, very, very poor quality flight and uh, poor quality sleep and they'll get to the destination feeling tired so i would rather say here's a day flight if you don't sleep you don't sleep it doesn't matter um and give them a good night's sleep that night so we look at the timing of flights when they arrive you know it's great to have a flight that arrives sort of mid-afternoon you can get to your hotel get to the get to where you need to go have something to eat and then go straight to bed um so timing of flights timing of sleep both on the plane and when they arrive and light they're probably the the big ones that we use yeah and also before uh before going for uh for a game for for a competition it's not a it's not such a wise idea to uh kind of go right from the training to the plane am i right so it's not good to uh travel while being fatigued tired or whatever from the training session because the I think that coaches really, you know, they they like to use their time as much as they can with the training sessions. They don't they don't want to miss any sessions, so they like schedule training right before a plane, and then the athletes yep. are on the plane, and that's the worst scenario they can do. Am I right? Yeah, so it can be. So obviously, you know, pl- uh, aeroplane is not a good idea, a good um, place to actually recover. So yeah. you know, you're not getting ideal recovery on <laughs> right. a plane. Um, and the other thing is, I always think, however tired you are when you get on a plane, you can multiply that by. Uh, at least double it but when you get off the plane. Mm-hmm. So I always like athletes to be as 
fresh as they can when they get on the plane. They obviously don't need to taper for a flight, but, you know, right. just <laughs> like getting on a flight feeling is, you know, feeling pretty good and, and not feeling, you know, completely exhausted. And a lot of people, a lot of um, athletes will say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a pretty bad night's sleep. I'm going to stay up late so that I can sleep well on the plane. Mm-hmm. And that's generally um, pretty bad advice. You know, we would say try and sleep as well as you can and get a good night's sleep. Cut, get on the plane as fresh as you can um, because the plane ride in itself will be actually quite fatiguing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, let's move to the water immersion. Uh, water immersion is becoming increasingly popular with elite athletes and therefore among sports scientists. So, what are the most common forms of water immersion and is one more appropriate from another in certain situations? Yeah, so for us, um, the most common water immersion um, protocols that we would use would be cold water immersion on its Mm -hmm. own, so what we classically call the ice bath, contrast water immersion, which is obviously the moving from the hot water to the cold water, and then we also use um, basically what you just call standard pool recovery, so Mm -hmm. um, being in a pool of about 27, 28 degrees Celsius um, and doing some walking or some stretching or some active work in the pool. Um, and then there's just pure hot water on its own, so just the spa bath. So they're the, they're the four ones that we would typically use. We tend to prioritise the cold water when it's hot environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So if we've had athletes playing outdoors and they've got high core body temperatures, the cold water on its own seems to be quite effective. Um, when we've got individuals that might have a bit of muscle damage or muscle soreness, mm-hmm. we would generally prescribe the hot and cold. That seems to work a little better, whether it's the flushing um, or type um, action by moving from the hot to the cold, that seems to be um, working best. Um, several days after, so for example, a, a football team who might have a bit of muscle soreness, you know, the next day they might do some active work where they mm-hmm. walk or stretch in the pool. So that's sort of post day um, one. Um, and and we have noticed some positive responses for if um, individuals are doing high intensity sprint work that the cold water immersion on its own seems to be pretty good. Right. So basically, the way we kind of look at it is if if environmental temperatures are warm, we go for the cold water over we prioritise it over everything else because the mm-hmm. body doesn't like these really high core temperatures post exercise. Um, so it tries to fight that. It tries to cool the body down itself naturally anyway so if you can speed that up that can help the general um, recovery process Uh, hot and cold we think is pretty good under a lot of situations the only time we don't incorporate any hot water is if there might be an athlete that's got um, an acute injury so less than Mm -hmm. an injury that's occurred within like 48 hours or you know if they've got bruising or contusions or something like that where sending extra heat to the area is probably not a good idea so um but and then we tend to use the more active work um Mm -hmm. a little bit post so a little bit after the um sort of sort of one day post so they're the kind of general rules that we use but to be perfectly honest there's not a lot of research that's looked at the difference between cold and contrast Mm -hmm. um so we find a lot of athletes though prefer the contrast it's like the hot water makes the the cold water bearable Mm -hmm. um and it takes you know an athlete has to have a pretty high 
body temperature to just want to do cold water on its on, on its own. So we find contrast is very popular, although a lot of the research has occurred on the cold water on its own. Mm-hmm. I assume that different temperatures would have different effects on the body. And uh, how do you make your decision about temperature, exact temperature? Yeah, so again, um, what we tend to do with the hot water is we've used temperature around about 38 degrees, so uh-huh. pretty close to pretty close to our core body temperature. Body, yeah, yeah. Um, the temperature we use um, in at the AIS is 15 degrees Celsius for the cold water, and mm-hmm. the reason for that is there is some evidence that under 10 degrees um, can stimulate pain receptors and potentially um, and can it can actually be quite uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, to be under 10 degrees and. It seems also that it's the combination of the time in the water as well as the water temperature. So if you've got temperatures that are really, really cold and you've got athletes that are only going up to their knees because it's too cold, you know, they're not getting the benefits of time in the water, the benefits of hydrostatic pressure. So obviously the deeper you are in water, the greater the hydrostatic pressure. Um, And so you want the time, we want the depth and we want the temperature. And so when we use 15 degrees, we find this temperature is, I wouldn't say comfortable, um, it's still cold, but Mm -hmm. it's enough that you can spend a reasonable amount of time in there and you can spend a decent amount of time in there regardless of your body size. So if you're a big, muscly, lean athlete, you can probably spend a little bit more time in there. If you're an athlete that's carrying a bit more body fat, you can spend a bit more time in there. But if you're a tiny little gymnast with not much well, almost zero body yeah. fat, you know, only a few percent body fat there, then um, you can um, still tolerate that sort of 15 degree temperatures okay. So we're really looking for a temperature that can um, work for a wide range of athletes. Yeah, you actually covered my next question. Yeah, I wanted to ask, do you consider athlete's body composition? So let's. So if we manipulate temperature, so do we need to manipulate temperature uh, so if we have uh, more heavier and more muscular guy in order to get the same benefits. So uh, yeah. they need to stay longer or if they're mm, heavier. Yeah. Yeah, again, we have have a student of mine, um, Jessica Stevens, who's just finished her PhD looking uh-huh. at this area. She's got a couple of papers recently out, and it does seem that the more insulation you have, whether that's muscle mass or fat mass, um, means that you won't um, respond as much as quickly to mm-hmm. the different water temperatures because you've got that protection. Yeah. But, <laughs> but kind of like almost more importantly is that if you're using cold water, say, at half time in an event or using it before a competition. If you're really, really lean, so if you're someone with not a lot of muscle or fat mass, then you can overcool quite easily. Um, so you can become, you, your body temperature can drop too much. And um, obviously we know you need warm muscles to um, for them to contract fast. So you can actually impair your performance if you're doing this cold water immersion too close to your next effort. Um, if you've done, um, if you're quite lean and you've stayed in the water for a reasonable amount of time. Right. Right. So with all recovery methods today, I assume that there would be high inter-individual variability and uh, what influences that variability the most and what that means for us? Yeah, um, it's a yeah, great question. Um, obviously, as we just discussed, body composition is one. Um, I think um, 
previous history of use of water immersion. So what I mean by that is like, the f- and you may have experienced with your athletes, the first time someone gets in an ice bath, it's a bit of an experience. Um, and most people can't stay in there very long. It's quite a stressful experience for some people that first time. Whereas when you get to um, use it more often, then you've, they, they start to tend to get a bit used to it. They're used to the they know what to expect, I guess, is probably a good way of describing it. Um, another thing that we have noticed too, and we don't really know exactly why, but there seems to be a genetic component to whether or not people enjoy the um, enjoy mm-hmm. the water immersion. So, for example, we have um, a number of Polynesian athletes that come from countries like Tonga, mm-hmm. Samoa, Fiji, um, and some of these athletes, they really, right. really dislike the cold water. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Aboriginal Australians, same thing, do not like the cold water. So whether there's some sort of um, genetic protective um, element there, we're not really sure, but mm-hmm. we do find that there are some um, individuals that really don't like it. And I think if you, you know, I work with athletes, if and if I think that they've given the water immersion a good try, like they've, you know, they've done it a couple of times, they and they genuinely don't like it, and they genuinely don't think it works for them, then I'm happy to look at an at an alternative recovery strategy. So, um, I don't think I think you know recovery is not just about physically restoring the body. It's also you want it to be something that they mentally can tolerate Mm -hmm. now obviously we don't want them to just if they think it works for them but they just don't like it then i don't think that's a good excuse but if they genuinely don't think it works for them and they really don't enjoy it i would rather give them something else to try um because i think the the stress of um having to do that three or four times a week all the time um is probably just not worth it Mm -hmm. right and can you just touch a little bit on differences between recovery strategies after strength training and after endurance training and the specifics a bit. Yeah, I think um, we usually would recommend after strength training the contrast, the hot and the cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And we tend to use, like I think you should be able to do your water immersion recovery strategy in 15 minutes. So, you know, the water, you know, if you're doing it, cold only 15 minutes if you're doing um contrast you know Mm -hmm. 14 15 16 minutes you should be able to do it in that time so so for contrast we often use um two minutes hot two minutes cold right uh we've used one minute hot one minute cold in research but we find that athletes don't really like that because you've got to get in and out multiple times Mm -hmm. so um you know, as we know, a lot of athletes, surprisingly, are quite lazy. Um, yeah. So, two minutes, two minutes seems to be a strategy that works for the contrast. We seem to like that after strength training seems to work quite well. And I'm sure you've seen some of the literature around adaptation and that cold water after strength training may not be the best idea to do. So, we tend to look at contrast after strength training. Um, endurance training, we tend to use more like the cold water Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, contrast would also be fine, uh, but we tend to use cold water, and again, it's more based around those high high core body temperatures and trying right. to settle it down. And for us, I guess it depends, like, what country you're in, where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, for mm-hmm. us in Australia, mm-hmm. we're predominantly looking, you know, we predominantly only care about Summer Olympics. Right. Um, we are typically a warmer climate, so for us, the cold water is our sort of go-to, whereas I can understand if you're in northern Europe 
and you're training in winter, you mm-hmm. know, your sauna or your spa may be your go-to and that's right. totally fine. So yeah. what the way I look at recovery really is bringing the body back to homeostasis, so back to balance. So if you're, you know, if you're, um, we work with a sailing team and they may be out on the water and they may be wet and they may come back really cold. The last mm-hmm. thing I'm going to do is put them in a nice bath. For them, the best thing is probably a hot shower or a hot bath. So um, we look at it as a, you know, a coming back to balance perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, is there anything that athletes can implement at home to help their recovery except a good sleep? For example, if they don't have, if our facility doesn't have all the equipment necessary for recovery strategies that we are talking about right now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we um, have done a very small research project on, but we have looked at mm-hmm. um, contrast showers. Mm-hmm. So with showers, you definitely obviously get that temperature change. You don't get the hydrostatic pressure, um, but you do get the temperature exposure. So um, showers can be really quite effective. If you're really hot, having a very cold shower can work and the hot and cold showers can be something that you can do as well. Um, we also um, like compression so whether it's just that you know some compression tights or clothing that you might like to to wear that's something that you can put on after training and and wear at home Um, if you can't get in to have um, massage or soft tissue then you know things like foam rolling or um, self-massage so Mm -hmm. our soft tissue therapists treat our teach our athletes self-massage so that there's things they can do when they're at home Um, then of course obviously you have your nutrition um, and then I think the other other thing is just downtime and for me downtime can be Mm -hmm. um, away from social media if you are a high level athlete um, social media can just be a source of additional stress Mm -hmm. so the home environment can be like your little space away from the away from the stresses of the world hopefully and take yourself away from that social media it might be reading a book or watching tv or whatever but maybe trying to separate yourself a little bit from social media which is easy for us to say but not many Mm -hmm. athletes will actually do Mm -hmm. it (laughs) that was that was actually my follow-up question follow-up question and uh do you assess mental uh, stress with your athletes Yeah, we have just started to look at this area. So we've obviously known that it's important, but like most physiologists, we've mm-hmm. stayed in the muscles and the periphery, but <laughs> now we're starting to work out that actually the brain is probably very important. <laughs> right. So we have uh, I have a PhD student who's just starting um, her PhD, which is on um, mental fatigue in athletes. Mm-hmm. We have an, an athlete management system here in Australia that the athletes put data into and we're changing that to add some questions around mental fatigue to try and get get an understanding of it. I think it is um, it is really important. I definitely have seen a, a team, an Australian team, who I would call very well physically recovered but mentally not so much. And um, whether that's because I've traveled a lot, um, the stress of selection for competition, um, not being home that often, I definitely, we definitely see that as well. And and it's a team sport where obviously there's more cognitive challenges and stresses as well. So right. um, I think it's super important. I think we need to start asking the right questions and then um, looking at what sort of psychological strategies we can do for that. You know, I think things like meditation and mindfulness, um, relaxation are all fantastic things that are mm-hmm. only going to help an athlete 
with their um, stresses and with their ability to sleep. But again, it's getting um, athletes to engage in that and to and to start using those those techniques. But I think they are really great techniques mm -hmm. to use. Excellent. And uh, before we wrap up, um, would you say that SNCs and sports scientists in general? are too much focused on external load monitoring while neglecting internal load monitoring, especially psychological factors. I have a feeling that uh, simple tracking at uh, how do you feel today and was it really hard for you today can beat fancy equipment anytime. What is your take on mm. that? Yeah, I 100% I agree. And uh, for, from, for two reasons. One, when I did my PhD in overtraining, we measured every hormone pretty much known to man. Mm -hmm. We did stable isotope infusion to look at metabolism, and the only genuinely good predictor was how the athletes felt. What they right. wrote. <laughs> so we spent a lot of money when we could have just asked them some simple questions. Um, and then also when you know, as long as you've got honest athletes and you give them good feedback, so that you, they're, if they're filling out this sort of questionnaire type things every day, mm -hmm. you know, that's great. But we need to make sure that we give them good feedback based on that, so that they continue to do it and that they continue to be honest. Um, because obviously, if they're not giving us honest feedback, then it's yeah, it's not that's useless. Data. It's not. Exactly. So I think these subjective um, markers, um, subjective questions are very easy to do. They give you great information. They probably give you information quicker than any other form of um, any other form of monitoring that you do. And I actually like the combination, if you can do it, of mm -hmm. the external and the internal load. And because sometimes you might see the external load doesn't change, but the internal load goes way up. Um, or yeah. way down so they yeah. just feel it's harder for not changing anything um, or vice versa you know you might be changing things in the external load and not seeing much of a change in the in the internal load which can be a good thing or a bad thing so um, look I think there's um, the if I was to pick one thing if I had nothing else that I could uh, if I could choose from everything I would I would pick subjective load if I had some um, uh, subjective markers. If I had a little bit more money and I had the equipment, I'd combine the two together. Um, but I, I, I agree. I don't think external load on its own gives you the information that you really need. Right. Excellent. And uh, what about combat athletes? Because they tend to be pretty, you know, when you're asking them for a subjective measure of fatigue or whatever, they tend to, you know, they're too proud to say, Yes. Uh, I'm tired of stuff. How to deal with them? Do you have any <laughs> advice? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess sort of a couple of things there would be to give them some education that they're uh, an accurate response and, and good information from them is going to help them. And it may not be that you, you're going to take training away from them. It may be that they're doing really well so you can give them more. Um, mm -hmm. But so it's really about um, trying to give them some good education on, on really why they um, why they should be honest, right. and then I think you know the great coaches like the really good ones that know their athletes. They'll know just by looking at an athlete, by mm -hmm. the way they walk, by the way they talk, by their face. Like you know, you can see I can see a swimmer walk on pool deck, and they'll uh, and they'll say they've had nine hours sleep. I'm like, there is not a chance in the world you can just look at their eyes and you can tell they haven't had nine hours sleep. <laughs> yeah, so right. I think. The most experienced coaches, um, in particular, they're the ones that can – they will know their athletes um, pretty well and can right. hopefully ask the right questions. But I think it's just convincing them to be as honest as they can. Right. 
Excellent. Um, just the last the last thing. Uh, where can people find you, Shona, and your work and get familiar with what are you doing and on social yeah, media so, and everything else? Yeah. Um, probably the most up-to-date um, information um, that we have is probably on Twitter. So um, <laughs> yeah, <right>. my Twitter <laughs> is just Shona.Helson. Um, nice. And then... AIS also has um, a pretty good website, which is www.ais.org.au. Mm-hmm. Um, they have some great stuff on a few different areas. Um, but I would say, you know, we're probably um, putting out our students' work on Twitter uh, probably quicker than yeah. <laughs> quicker than you can find it through the literature searches. So, right. um, yeah, awesome. Twitter's probably the place to go. Right. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, not... Uh, Shona, thank you very much for your time here, and I really appreciate this conversation. No pleasure. It was great. Thanks for the good questions. No problem. See ya. Thank you, Ivan. Cheers. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM, and we'll try to answer it when we can.